Michael Gerson observes, the heroes of America are heroes of unity. Our political system, Gerson writes, is designed for vigorous disagreement. It is not designed for irreconcilable contempt. Welcome to the Humble Jurist Podcast by the J. Ruben Clark Law Society. I'm Adam Belinsky, and you just heard a snippet from Judge Thomas B. Griffith, a federal judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Though he addressed Law Society members at a worldwide fireside in 2018, many of his thoughts are timely, in particular when it comes to matters of race and political division. His remarks drew largely upon his experiences as a member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and focus on how he believes members of that faith can promote civic charity and the bonds of affection. Without further ado, let's listen to some more of what he had to say. Bringing together people who had been separated by cultural falsehoods about race and creating relationships of love and respect. When we are doing it right, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ works to bring at one those who are divided by race, gender, nationality, sexual orientation, and other fault lines that keep us from fully embracing our brothers and sisters. And this may be where we can be of help to our divided nation. Mormons have a sense that we have a role to play in defending and preserving the Constitution of the United States, and we teach one another to study its text and history. That is all good. But I wonder if there might be something even more basic that we can offer. Matthew Holland, president of Utah Valley University, is a scholar of the American founding. President Holland has written that the idea of civic charity was central to the creation of the United States and is indispensable to the success of the Constitution's structural protections of federalism, separated and enumerated powers, and its guarantees of fundamental rights. It was Pilgrim John Winthrop who first recognized the need for civic charity in the spring of 1630 on the deck of the Arbella. In a sermon that has been called the Ur-Text of American Literature, Winthrop implored those about to launch the Massachusetts Bay Colony, quote, we must delight in each other, make each other's conditions our own, always having before our eyes our commission and community in the work, end of quote. Some 230 years later, Abraham Lincoln gave the fullest expression to the idea of civic charity and its critical role in defending and preserving the Constitution. Lincoln understood that without civic charity, the Constitution could not succeed. And so, at the most perilous moment in our nation's history, and in an effort to avoid the cataclysm of civil war that posed the greatest threat the Constitution has ever faced, Lincoln pled with his fellow citizens, we are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. As we know it, it turned out 
that those bonds of affection were not strong enough to hold the nation together. War came, and its consequences are with us still. Near the end of the armed hostilities, Lincoln once again invoked those bonds of affection in an effort this time to reconstruct constitutional government for the nation. Because once again, he realized that the Constitution cannot work without them. And in his second inaugural address, he, he said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan, to do all which may, all which may achieve and cherish a just and a lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. In the challenges we face today, strengthening those bonds of affection may be as important as any other task we face in defending and preserving the Constitution. Our nation is rightly committed to banishing discrimination that holds back women and racial, sexual, and other minorities from full participation in our national life. Can we pursue that goal while allowing religious minorities to live consistent with their conscience? There's the challenge, equality and religious liberty are intention. Martha Minow, recently dean of Harvard Law School, is a political progressive fully committed to equality. She recognizes that our current controversy over equality and religious liberty is high stakes because important rights and values are involved. Dean Minow has wisely called on all sides to temper their rhetoric and alter their tactics in an effort to seek areas of compromise. Compromise, she points out, is not a departure from principle. Compromise allows the type of accommodation that is indispensable for stability in a diverse society. Dean Minow argues that both sides should seek areas of convergence and compromise where neither seeks total victory, but rather finds ways to accommodate the legitimate concerns of the other. How is such compromise possible? Dean, Meadow, Dean Minow asserts, quote, attitudes of respect, flexibility, and humility can help generate answers beyond exemption and no exemption when religious principles and civil rights collide. She continues, humility does not mean self-doubt or doubt about principle, but it does involve restraint and making room for open and respectful exploration of the other point of view, end of quote. Now that sounds to me like a description of a pretty good ward council. I believe that our experience in our ward laboratories of Christian living can help in a big way. In 2015, the Utah legislature enacted one of the most far-reaching statutes in the nation, barring discrimination in housing and employment on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity. Yet the statute also protects religious liberty. Representatives of the LGBT community hailed the legislation as landmark the result of a change from a relationship of distrust to one of mutual respect and understanding. 
According to those involved in the negotiations, small group dynamics were a factor that led to, the his, to this historic breakthrough. The compromise was worked out not only around the conference room tables of lawyers, but around the dining room tables of people who had become friends despite their different views. As these friendships formed, ideas emerged about how each side could accommodate the needs of others while maintaining their own core values. Significantly, many of the players were Mormons or former Mormons who had experience in the life of a ward. Now, there is a debate over the, whether the Utah Compromise can be accomplished elsewhere. I'm not a political science, nor am I scientist, nor am I any good at predictions, predictions, but I can hope. Is it too much to think that the skills gained from the life in a ward can help address the divides that separate our nation? Can it be that our work as home teachers or visiting teachers, our, workly our weekly passing of the sacrament to others, and our learning to love those in our ward who see things differently can play a role in helping our nation bridge its divisions? I believe they can, but only if we get involved in the world beyond the chapel doors. We are all busy, I know, with work, family, and church. But the time has come for us to set our sights on building community beyond the ward. One way we can do this is to look for ways to make existing church programs more oriented to serving others. Over a decade ago, I presided over a young single adult stake, which was comprised largely of students attending BYU. It was a remarkable group of young people. And as a stake presidency, we realized that there were important things they could do if given the opportunity. And so, with the approval of Elder John Groberg, who was the general authority to whom I reported, we created in each ward a pure religion committee whose charge was to form a partnership with a service provider in the community so that our members could help those on the margins of society. Our inspiration was Mother Teresa, and we began the new school year with a fireside that showed a documentary about her life of service to the poorest of the poor. And when the stake presidency visited each ward, we shared this message. I bear you my witness that if the Lord Jesus Christ were to be physically present in Provo today, he wouldn't attend a single meeting of our stake. Why? He has you covered by your bishop and Relief Society president. My witness is, if that, is that if the Lord were to come to Provo today, he would spend time at the state mental hospital. The battered, women, the battered women's shelter, and visiting with a recently arrived immigrant family from Central America. If that's where he would be, then what are we doing here in a comfortable setting at church? Actually, something very important. We are here to partake of the sacrament and encourage one another to trust in Christ and follow him and his prophets. But you know what? We can do that in three hours. Actually, we can probably do that in less than three hours, but that's a topic for another day. <laughs> we can do that in three hours. After that, let's go where the Lord would be. Now, beyond finding ways to better use our church programs to serve others, we can be involved in the life of our neighborhoods, towns, counties, and cities. And in those roles, we can bring to others what we have learned and experienced in our laboratory for Christian living. 
Celebrated historian Richard Bushman notes a trend that is surprising to some. Quote, Mormon influence is being felt in many segments of our society. Close quote. Bushman describes this growing influence for good as radiant Mormonism. Quote, Think of all the individuals who have an impact simply because they live good lives. The psychiatrists, the teachers, the policemen, the bosses, the coaches, the construction workers who are admired and respected and appreciated by people around them because they are decent, generous people of goodwill. Everywhere you turn, Bushman writes, you find Mormons in positions of power and influence. But the influence goes beyond the eminent and powerful. It is exercised by ordinary Latter-day Saints going about their everyday lives. They may not trumpet their religion to their associates, but they elevate their workplaces and neighborhoods by working for the good of the people around them. According to Bushman, radiant Mormonism works only when two conditions are present. First, we must be trusted. People must know that we have their best interests at heart, that we are not maneuvering for our own gain. And second, we must be competent. We must know what we are doing. Now, Brother Bushman is not a man given to hyperbole, but mark these words, quote, radiant Mormonism must extend Mormon influence. Every day, he writes, we add to the sum of goodwill among humankind. Someday, that goodness may save the world. Wait, what, what, what? Did he, did he just say that we could help save the world? That's a much taller order than what I'm calling for. I, I'm just asking us to save the Constitution. <laughs> and I'm asking us to do that by taking what we know about the atonement of Christ and the life experience we have gained in our wards, how to create and strengthen bonds of affection, and use that skill in our neighborhoods the workplace, our town councils, and even the halls of Congress to create relationships across divides that result in empathy, which then can facilitate compromise, which is an ever-present need in a democratic republic whose motto is e pluribus unum. Get involved with groups and organizations that work to build bridges, the bridge divides. Then, as a member of that group, be yourself. Remember how we all reacted to Stephen R. Covey's success with the Seven Habits books? We realized that Brother Covey had taken principles that are commonplace among us, the standard fare of many a priesthood and Relief Society lesson, and shared them with a larger audience. So, join the PTA the Rotary, the Bar Association, or any of a thousand different points of light that seek to do good, or, or start your own. But if you do, make sure the group includes people of different faiths or no faith at all, and show by your example what you have learned about creating unity from your experiences in your war. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Now, a cautionary note about our necessary involvement in partisan politics. Too often those who practice politics play upon passions and biases and use personal attacks rather than treating opponents with respect. We can do better. As we embrace the best that American culture, political culture has to offer, a commitment to liberty 
and equality be opportunity. I hope that we will reject the brand of politics that has far too often been part of that culture. When I was a student at BYU, we were taught to have a style of our own in dress and grooming standards. That, that seems like good advice for our involvement in politics. We, we should have a style of our own, a Mormon approach to politics. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you will have certain views about marginal tax rates or the best way for a nation to conduct its foreign affairs by virtue of the fact that you are a Latter-day Saint. I am, in fact, very uncomfortable with any who maintain that principles of the restored gospel compel their partisan affiliations. But I am saying that a Mormon approach to politics will be animated by a passion for justice and fairness and a respectful way of treating opposing points of view and the people who espouse them. And it will look for ways to unify people. Michael Gerson observes, the heroes of America are heroes of unity. Our political system, Gerson writes, is designed for vigorous disagreement. It is not designed for irreconcilable contempt. Such contempt looses the ties of citizenship and undermines the idea of patriotism. Times of change, like our own, cause turmoil and anxiety, and it is tempting to seek security by lashing out in anger and frustration and then retreating to our own tribe of like-minded people. But I don't think that's what the Lord calls us to do in the Restoration. I believe instead that he wants us to join with others and become agents of reconciliation in a divided world. The concept expressed in the English word reconciliation has Hebrew roots. When it appears in the Hebrew Bible, it conveys the sense of bringing together into one things that have been separated. The King James translators made up a new word for the concept atonement or at one month. Last April, Elder Holland reminded us in General Conference that our best tools for addressing the divisions that beset us are the simple and profound teachings of Jesus summarized in the two great commandments. Quote, someday I hope a great global chorus will harmonize across all racial and ethnic lines, declaring that guns, slurs and vitriol are not the way to deal with human conflict. The declarations of heaven cry out to us that the only way complex societal issues can ever be satisfactorily resolved is by loving God and keeping his commandments, thus opening the door to the one lasting salvific way to love each other as neighbors." Close quote. It is my hope that we will take from the doctrines of the Restoration and our lived experience and our wards the desire to become heroes of unity. If we are trusted and skilled in creating and strengthening the bonds of affection that are necessary, a necessary precondition for constitutional government, this may be our greatest gift to a divided nation in a moment of great peril. 
If you wish to listen to his entire talk, go to Firesides on the Law Society website, jrcls.org. Thanks for joining us for this episode of The Humble Jurist. Until next time, be humble and just.